It seems incredibly fitting that 50 years to the day after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, America's first great songwriter was born. On July 4, 1826, Stephen Collins Foster was born in Lawrenceville, Pennsylvania, a town his father had founded. The youngest of maybe 10 children, he grew up in a privileged family. He attended the finest academies and found a love for music at an early age. He learned to play the violin, the flute, the clarinet, the guitar, and the piano. He wrote his first song, Tioga Waltz, when he was just 14. In 1846, when Stephen was 20, he moved to Cincinnati, where he became a bookkeeper for his brother Denning's steamship company. His office overlooked the docks, and all day he saw both black and white dock workers going about their business. These workers were often singing as they loaded and unloaded the boats. Simple songs with catchy lyrics. Foster, I'm sure, found his toes tapping away as he worked at his ledger. After two years of listening to this kind of music, he took a crack at writing a song of his own. The result was Oh Susanna, one of the best-known songs in American history. In those days, of course, there was no recording, so popular music spread by sheet music. If it sold 5,000 copies, it was considered a hit. But Oh Susanna? It sold 100,000 copies, with countless more pirated copies in circulation. It became an anthem of the gold rush and spread far and wide. Children still sing it today. Stephen Foster decided he would try and make a living writing music. He returned to Pittsburgh and wrote another huge hit called Camptown Races in 1850. In 1851, he wrote Old Folks at Home, also known as Swanee River. This song would go on to become the official song of Florida. In 1852, Foster married Jane Denny McDowell. Although he wrote many songs commonly associated with the Deep South, Foster's one and only trip there was his honeymoon, a steamboat ride to New Orleans. That same year, Harriet Beecher Stowe published Uncle Tom's Cabin a book which touched Foster like it did so many others. Uncle Tom's Cabin was the second best-selling book of the 19th century, second only to the Bible. The story, of course, tells of life on a Kentucky farm and how hard times forced the owner to sell his slaves downriver, to escape and cross from Kentucky into Ohio, while Uncle Tom is sold and separated from his family and his home in Kentucky. Stephen Foster had lived right across the river from Kentucky, in a major hub of the Underground Railroad in Cincinnati. This book made him think deeply on the issue of slavery, and on the separation of slave families, and of people in general being separated from their home. As songwriters often do, he sat down and wrote a song about what he was feeling. He called it Poor Uncle Tom, Good Night. Before the song was published, though, he changed the name to the name we know it by today, My Old Kentucky Home, Good Night. The song was published in 1853 and would go on to be the most famous and beloved song in Kentucky and one that has endured for over 150 years. In his autobiography, My Bondage, My Freedom, Frederick Douglass praised songs like My Old Kentucky Home, stating that they, quote, Awaken sympathies for the slave, in which anti-slavery principles take root, grow, and flourish. One of the original lyrics of the song, 
Tote the Weary Load, was the original title of Margaret Mitchell's book, later changed to Gone with the Wind. The lyric does appear in the book, though, and the song appears in the movie. My old Kentucky home has been recorded countless times by such artists as Bing Crosby, Al Jolson, Paul Robeson, John Prine, Louis Armstrong, Judy Garland, and Johnny Cash. My favorite recent version is an acapella rendition by the band Lincoln Bridge. Perhaps the strangest rendition of the song came recently as Kentuckian Johnny Depp, Lyle Lovett, and Warren Zevon performed it as Louisville native Hunter S. Thompson's cremated remains were blasted from a cannon. My old Kentucky home is sung before the Kentucky Derby and at many of Kentucky's university and high school events. In 1928, My Old Kentucky Home was recognized as the state's official song, although in 1986, the original lyric, Darkies, was changed to People, so as to be less offensive to our modern ears, and rightfully so. I applaud Kentucky for choosing this song as its state song. It is a somber ballad about slavery, and in so doing, the state owns up to this sad chapter in Kentucky's and our nation's history. In a strange twist, though, at some point, Kentucky also officially named a large mansion called Federal Hill as my old Kentucky home. The only evidence I've seen that Foster ever even visited Federal Hill, a property owned by his cousin, is a letter written by his brother 36 years after his death. It is a beautiful mansion, but it was clearly not the inspiration for the song. I hope this is something Kentucky will think on again in the future. My Old Kentucky Home is a wonderful song which has truly stood the tests of time. It is a song beloved by all Kentuckians and by so many others around the world. Weep no more, my lady. Oh, weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home, for the old Kentucky home far away. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. This week, I'm coming to you from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the Bluegrass State. I've been here for a few weeks now traveling across the north of the state to find the stories I've prepared for you today. I came into the state from Cincinnati via Covington and Newport, where I traveled east along the Ohio River through beautiful Augusta to Maysville. I saw some wonderful covered bridges as I made my way to Lexington, where I drank AL81 soda and watched the horse races at Keeneland. From there, I traveled through the beautiful capital city of Frankfurt and on to Louisville, Kentucky's largest city. From there, I headed south to Bardstown, the bourbon capital of the world. In Owensboro, I ate mutton barbecue and got my first taste of burgoo, a native stew of Kentucky. Onward to Paducah, and finally to the far west of the state, where the Ohio River joins the mighty Mississippi and heads south. I found Kentucky to be a fascinating place, If I thought of Ohio as the deep south of the Midwest, then Kentucky is the far north of the deep south. 
Many Kentuckians consider themselves to be Southerners, but people in the South tend to think otherwise. Kentucky was carved out of Western Virginia soon after the Revolution and became the 15th state on June 1, 1792. Kentucky hoped to remain neutral during the Civil War, and there were strong Union and Confederate sympathies in the state. As the birthplace of both Union President Abraham Lincoln and Confederate President Jefferson Davis, both hoped very much to control the state. It was, in fact, the only state to have a star on both the Union and Confederate flags. Kentucky is one of the most interesting places to study and think about the Civil War. After the war, coal and tobacco ruled the day in Kentucky. The state also gave birth to bluegrass music through its native son, Bill Monroe, whose home place I had the pleasure of visiting just last week. Not far away, in the town of Rosine, is the wonderful weekly Rosine Barn Jamboree, which showcases local musical talent every Friday night. It was there that I recorded the music for this week's show. To find out more about the Jamboree, search Rosine, R-O-S-I-N-E, Rosine Barn Jamboree on Facebook, or follow the link from my blog. Speaking of my blog, be sure you check it out and subscribe so you can keep up with all of my adventures. Find it at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, go, beforeisleep.com. I'm also on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Enough small talk, folks. Let's get right into some Kentucky history. To get the full effect, why don't you grab a glass of bourbon this week, although not if you're listening in your car. Sit back, put your feet up, and let me take you deep into the heart of the Bluegrass State. Fantley Roy Bean Jr. was born sometime around 1825 in Mason County, Kentucky. The youngest of five children, he found Kentucky boring and wanted nothing more than to get out. When he was just 16, he rode a flatboat all the way to New Orleans, where he hoped to find work. Instead, he found trouble, and trouble, it seemed, would follow him wherever he went. He soon moved to San Antonio, in what was then the Republic of Texas, not many years after no less than a dozen of his fellow Kentuckians had died there defending the Alamo. In San Antonio, he joined his older brother Sam and began working as a teamster and bullwhacker. After a few years in San Antonio, Sam and Roy moved to Chihuahua in Mexico, where they opened a trading post. One night, a Mexican desperado rode into town, threatening to kill the first gringo he saw. Not wanting to be that gringo, Roy shot and killed the man, and then fled to Sonora. From there, he moved on to San Diego to live with another brother, Joshua, who would go on to be elected the first mayor of American San Diego. One day, Roy was challenged to a shooting match on horseback and got to decide what they would shoot at he determined they should shoot at each other. Roy escaped the duel unharmed and succeeded in shooting the other man in the arm. 
Both lived, but both were arrested on charges of assault with intent to kill. While Roy was in jail, he had many female visitors who brought him food, booze, and cigars. The last gift he received there was a packet of tamales with a knife cooked inside. He dug his way out of his cell and got out of town as quickly as he could. His brother Joshua, meanwhile, had tried to illegally sell City Hall to himself and was soon ran out of town as well. The brothers met back up in San Gabriel, where they opened the headquarters saloon. Joshua got into a fight over a woman the following year and was shot down in the street. Roy continued to run the saloon on his own. In 1854, the young woman he was courting was kidnapped and forced to marry a Mexican officer. Roy challenged this man to a duel and shot him dead. This man's friends were not impressed and tried to lynch Roy Bean. They put a noose around his neck as he sat bound on his horse. When the horse moved, he slipped off its back and, thankfully for Roy, the rope stretched and his toes reached the ground. The girl, who had been hiding behind a tree, cut him down and he escaped with only a sore neck and a permanent rope burn. Roy thought it would be best if he left California, so he returned to New Mexico, where his brother, Sam, had been elected sheriff of Donna Anna County. By 1861, the brothers were running a store and saloon in Pinos Altos, advertising booze and a fine billiards table. In 1862, the Civil War reached New Mexico, and when the Confederates were forced to retreat, Roy joined them. He went back to Texas, where he spent the duration of the war running Union blockades and trading with the British in the Caribbean. In 1866, when Roy was in his early 40s, he married 18-year-old Virginia Chavez. Their relationship was tumultuous, with Roy arrested for assault at least once. But they went on to have four children together. Roy made his living selling stolen firewood, butchering and selling unbranded cattle, and running a dairy selling watered-down milk. Finally, he saved enough to buy a saloon in Beantown, one of the city's biggest slums. In the early 1880s, Roy heard the railroad was moving west. He knew there was money to be made. He sold all of his possessions, bought a tent and 10 55-gallon barrels of whiskey, left his wife and kids, and headed west into the sunset. By 1882, he had established a ramshackle saloon in a town called Vinegaroon. It was a rough and ready railroad town, and the nearest court was 200 miles away in Fort Stockton. In August of that year, Bean was selected to be the local justice of the peace. His first act of business as Justice of the Peace was to shoot up his competitor's saloon and then turn his saloon into a courthouse. He had exactly one law book, the 1878 Revised Statutes of Texas, and at some point began referring to himself as the law west of the Picos, referring to the Picos River. Jurors were selected from his best bar patrons, and each was expected to buy a drink in the recesses, which were many. All of his guilty verdicts were subject to a fine, as there was no jail in town, and the fines went to pay his salary, so to speak. At one point, they found an unidentified corpse with a gun and $40 in his pockets. 
Bean imposed a $20 posthumous fine for carrying a concealed weapon, a $10 burial fee, and $10 in court costs. In 1882, Roy Bean moved his saloon 70 miles west to Strawbridge, and then on to Eagle's Nest, which would later be renamed Langtree. He opened a fine saloon there and named it the Jersey Lily, after actress Lily Langtree, who had been born on the English Channel Island of Jersey. There, he continued to hold court, charging $5 for a wedding and $10 for a divorce. He sold drinks and levied fines and generally had a merry old time. In 1896, he organized a world championship boxing match on an island in the middle of the Rio Grande. Since boxing was illegal in both Texas and Mexico, it seemed to be the perfect solution. Seven years later, on the night of March 15, 1903, Judge Roy Bean was back in San Antonio. After a rowdy night of drinking, he retired to his hotel room for the night. Sometime later, the law west of the Picos went out not with a bang, but with a whimper, and died quietly in his sleep. The exploits of Judge Roy Bean would go down in the lore of the Old West and spread through dime store novels, movies, and television. While all indications show that Roy Bean was not a good person, there are a few better examples I can think of of someone who lived their entire life by their own set of rules. No, it's not love, not like ours was. It's not love, but it keeps love from The 1840s were a tumultuous time around the world. The Great Potato Famine was happening in Ireland, forcing many Irish people to flee their homeland rather than watch their children starve to death. The failure of the March Revolution in Germany caused such political and social unrest that Germans left in droves, fearing for their lives. It is hard to imagine, but easy to understand how people, faced with horrible conditions, would flee their homeland and everything they've ever known in search of a better life elsewhere. Many of these immigrants came to the United States. They were willing to start at the bottom and work hard to try and build a new life in the new world. Hundreds of thousands of Americans can trace their ancestry back to this wave of immigrants, myself included. But these immigrants were not greeted with open arms. Not only were they going to compete for labor and industrial jobs, but many were also Catholic. Partly in response to these fears, a new political party was formed called the Native American Party. This party wanted to politically organize native-born American Protestants to defend their traditional religious, social, and political values. Meanwhile, the deaths of Kentucky's great compromiser, Henry Clay, and his fellow Whig, Daniel Webster, coupled with the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, would cause the Whig party to splinter and fall apart. Northern Whigs would join the Republican Party, and Southern Whigs would flock to this new nativist party, by then simply called the American Party. The party was a semi-secret organization, 
and if members were questioned about it or their involvement in it, they were supposed to simply reply, I know nothing. This led most people to simply call them the Know-Nothings, an appropriate name for a political party if ever there was one. When the Whig party split, Know-Nothing membership quickly grew from 50,000 to over a million. Much of this was happening in 1854, the year the party reached its peak. I'm sad to report that my hometown of Washington, D.C. elected a Know-Nothing mayor, John Towers, that year. That was also the year the Know-Nothing Party destroyed a stone donated by the Pope for the Washington Monument, halting its construction until after the Civil War. If you look closely at the monument today, you will see the top portion is a different color from the bottom, a lasting memorial to the destructive and divisive Know-Nothings. In 1855, Chicago would elect Know-Nothing Levi Boone as mayor, and he immediately banned immigrants from all city jobs. California formed a chapter as well, but they were more concerned with Chinese immigrants. The party's membership was strongest, however, in industrial towns where laborers faced competition from immigrants. As the party's popularity grew, their platforms solidified as well. Not only were they staunchly anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic, but they became hostile towards the wealthy elites and intellectuals as well. They became a truly populist and nationalistic group. Interestingly, they would run former President Millard Fillmore on their ticket in the 1856 presidential election, and he received 21.5% of the vote. In 1855, Kentuckian and future President Abraham Lincoln wrote about the rise of the Know-Nothings in a letter to his friend Joshua Speed. He wrote, quote, I am not a Know-Nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy." End quote. It is within this context that our attention will turn to Louisville in 1855. Louisville was a rapidly growing city as it served many of the supply needs to westward expansion. Work was plentiful, as it seemed was opportunity. By 1855, one-third of the population of Louisville was either Irish or German, of whom most were Catholic. Louisville Mayor John Barbie and a majority of the city council were know-nothings. These city leaders feared how the immigrants would vote, so they started spreading rumors that they wanted to disrupt the upcoming election and take over the city. Helping spread this message of fear was George Prentice, owner of the Louisville Journal. The city was on edge as Election Day, August 5th, loomed ever closer. When Election Day finally arrived, armed groups had been arranged to guard the polling stations. Threats and intimidation were used to keep the Germans and Irish from voting. An armed mob started to form and soon marched on the German neighborhood of Butchertown. 
German-owned coffee houses were broken into and looted, and a brewery was set on fire. People were beaten or shot down in the street. The mob moved on to a church, St. Martin of Tours, and began shooting at it. Former Kentucky Congressman William Thomason called for order and an end to the violence. He was struck from behind and beaten in the street. As the day wore on, the mob moved towards the 8th Ward, where many Irish families lived. A row of 12 houses on West Main Street was set on fire, and those who were home either burned in their houses or were shot as they tried to escape. A German priest, who was on his way to administer last rites to a dying parishioner, was stoned to death in the street. By the end of the day, now referred to as Bloody Monday, a hundred businesses and homes had been vandalized, looted, or burned, and as many as a hundred people had been killed in the riot. Louisville got what it wanted that day. 10,000 people left the city, bound for St. Louis, Milwaukee, Chicago, Cincinnati, and points west. Dozens of charred, burnt-out buildings dotted the city for years to come. Businesses lay empty, as did hundreds of houses and apartment blocks. They didn't have enough workers to fill their jobs, and their industry suffered. The 10th largest city in the country the day before Bloody Monday, Louisville quickly slipped in population, wealth, and prominence. It was a day that changed the entire future of the city. People of Irish and German ancestry are now such a prominent part of our American patchwork quilt that we celebrate St. Patrick's Day and Oktoberfest across the country. For many people, it may be hard to imagine that these immigrants were once so feared and vilified. For others, it's not hard to imagine at all. I wish I could say that people being killed in this country for their race, religion, or ethnicity was in the distant past. But as we all know, it's not. It's the same play today, just with a different cast of characters. If we don't start learning our history and discussing the bad parts alongside the good ones, we're just going to keep going around and around. When will we learn that hate is one of the biggest things that keeps us from moving forward? When will we learn? It was November of 1870, and Elizabethtown, Kentucky native Philip Arnold and his cousin and fellow Kentuckian John Slack walked quickly through the chilly San Francisco night. Arnold had been a hatter's apprentice back in Elizabethtown when he volunteered to serve in the Mexican-American War. After the war, he joined the California Gold Rush and had some success there. He returned home and bought a small farm in Kentucky married, and started a family before returning to California to once again seek his fortune. On this particular night, he and his cousin John appeared dirty and disheveled, but very alert. They arrived at their destination and, stopping to check that they hadn't been followed, they ducked inside. They entered the offices of San Francisco businessman George D. Roberts and quickly closed the door behind them. They were both excited and wide-eyed and told Roberts they had something of great value in the old buckskin sack that Philip Arnold clutched tightly in his fist. 
They wanted to store it in his safe, they said. They told him they really wanted to put it in the bank, but the hour was late and the bank was closed. Roberts pressed them on what was in their sack, but they wouldn't say. Finally, he got them to admit that they had found some rough diamonds out on an unclaimed tract in Indian country. He agreed to store their find and they swore him to secrecy. He mustn't say a word about what they had found. No sooner had the door closed behind Arnold and Slack and Roberts was on his way to discuss what had happened with his friend and business associate, William Ralston, the founder of the Bank of California. So much for secrets. He also contacted mining entrepreneurs William Lent and General George Dodge. He wired his friend, Asbury Harpending, also of Kentucky, who was in London at the time, and told him to return as fast as possible. As fast as possible in 1870 was almost six months, during which time Arnold and Slack paid another visit to Roberts, this time with 60 pounds of diamonds, rubies, and other gemstones. They placed the value at $600,000. Roberts and his associates were now chomping at the bit and knew they had to get these two country bumpkins out of the picture as quickly as possible. They offered then and there to buy the two out. Slack said he would take $100,000 for his share, 50 up front and another 50 after they made a third visit to their claim. Arnold held out but promised they would return with several million dollars worth of gems now that they understood the interest and value of their find. That summer, the two men returned to their secret spot. Harpending met the duo on their return journey in Lathrop, California. When he found them, Slack was sound asleep, but Arnold was wide awake with his rifle ready and his buckskin sack clutched close to his chest. Arnold told Harpending that they had had two bags equally full of gems, but had lost one over the side of a makeshift raft in a treacherous river crossing. Harpending gave them a receipt for their bag and boarded a ferry in Oakland to take him across the bay. His carriage was waiting for him in San Francisco and whisked him back to his home, where the other investors had gathered. We did not waste time with ceremony, he later wrote. A sheet was spread on my billiard table. I cut the elaborate fastenings of the sack and, taking hold of the lower corners, dumped the contents. It seemed like a dazzling, multicolored cataract of light. The men were stunned, but wanted to verify the value of the gems. They sent a small bag, maybe 10% of the total, to have it appraised in New York by none other than Charles Lewis Tiffany. Tiffany set the value of the gems at $150,000, making the total value of the whole bag hover at around $1.5 Tiffany got on board and soon got other investors in on the deal, including Civil War General George McClellan, New York Tribune owner Horace Greeley, and United States Congressman and former Governor of Massachusetts Benjamin Franklin Butler. Back in San Francisco, they put another portion of the gems on display at a local jeweler, fueling diamond fever and interest in their endeavor. With Tiffany's appraisal in hand, these men now wanted to visit the claim, and Arnold asked for $100,000 up front just to take them to it. They quickly agreed. 
Before they set out, they also enlisted the help of one Henry Jannon, a San Francisco-based mining engineer who had surveyed 600-plus mines and never made a mistake. He asked for $2,500 up front and 1,000 shares in the endeavor. Arnold met Jannon and several of the other investors in St. Louis, where they boarded a train for Rawlins, Wyoming. From there, Arnold led them on a confusing four-day journey on horseback, often circling back on himself, so that they would be unlikely to find their way back without his help. Finally, they arrived and spread out to look for gems. It wasn't long before they found one, then another, then another. They were delighted, euphoric even. They had hit the 1871 version of the lottery. They took what they could carry and quickly left to make their arrangements. First and foremost, they got Congressman Butler to amend the General Mining Act of 1872 to include diamond fields. On August 31st of that year, they got the Attorney General to issue an opinion stating specifically that diamonds were covered by the act. They then bought out Philip Arnold's share in the company. They paid him $350,000, in addition to the two $100,000 advances they had already given him and the $100,000 they had paid to Slack, for a grand total of $650,000, about $13.5 million today. The road was now clear for them to start their diamond mining in earnest. It amuses me to think how far they would have gotten with it if not for a chance meeting between mining engineer Jannon and U.S. Department of the Interior geologist Clarence King on a train in Oakland. King and his team had been working on a major survey of the region, including the area of far northeastern Colorado where the claim was located. He inspected a diamond that Jannon showed him and realized it would be a major embarrassment if he had overlooked such an important find. He had to go inspect the fields for himself. It was already October, so they wasted no time in making their way to the area. Not without difficulty, which was compounded by the cold weather, no doubt, they found the claim Jannon had staked. Soon after they arrived, they started finding gems themselves. They were excited by what they were finding, but soon King started to notice a pattern. For each diamond they found, they found 12 rubies and all of the gems they found were on ground which showed signs of disturbance. They didn't find anything on untrampled ground, not to mention that diamonds and rubies shouldn't be in the same place to begin with. They dug a ditch and didn't find a single diamond or gem farther than an inch or two below the surface. After several days of inspecting the site, King and his team hurried back to San Francisco, convinced that something was very wrong. He found Jannon in his hotel room and quickly filled him in on his findings. The next day, King and Jannon met with several of the investors at Ralston's office at the Bank of California. King read to them a statement he had prepared for the press, stating the fields were utterly valueless and that the investors had been the victims of an unparalleled fraud. They convinced King to lead them back to the claim and they left the next day. November was so cold that one man claimed his whiskey froze solid in the bottle. As King led them around the site and pointed out all of the inconsistencies, it slowly dawned on them that they had been had. They voted to begin dissolving the company immediately. 
When the San Francisco Chronicle published the story on November 26th, the headline shouted, Unmasked, the mammoth fraud exposed. They called it the most gigantic and barefaced swindle of the age. All involved were humiliated and no doubt realized very quickly that Philip Arnold and John Slack were anything but the idiot bumpkins they had assumed them to be. These two Kentuckians had scammed bankers and businessmen, a mining engineer, generals, a congressman, and perhaps the most famous jeweler in U.S. history. But how had they done it? Two years earlier, Philip Arnold had been working at San Francisco's Diamond Drill Company. He had no doubt liberated some of the industrial-grade diamonds they used to make their drill bits. He added in several handfuls of gemstones he bought from the Indians and swore a man to secrecy who he knew couldn't keep his mouth shut. After they planted their bait, they took the initial investment to London, where they bought cast-off diamond remnants from jewelers there under assumed names. They returned with a bigger bag, collected more money, and repeated what they had already done. Finally, on what was supposedly their third trip, they actually went to the mountains for the first time. They chose a barren, isolated field, just 20 miles from Rawlins, a far cry from the four-day journey they made it out to be. There, they simply scattered the gems around, pushing them down into anthills or just kicking dirt over them. Each step of the way, they collected more and more money until they knew the ruse was almost up. Then they sold out and walked away from the whole thing. John Slack was never heard from again, although it is now believed he ended up as a casket maker in New Mexico. Arnold returned to Kentucky, bought a house, land, and stock, and put it all in his wife's name. He also bought a bank of his own, right there in Elizabethtown. He had made some powerful enemies, but in some ways, they had to admire him. He was sued for fraud, and while he denied it to his dying day, he did settle out of court for a portion of what he had taken. He told the papers in Louisville that he had employed counsel himself, quote, a good Henry rifle. Six years after the great diamond hoax of 1872, Arnold got into a quarrel with another banker in town. Guns were drawn, and he took a shotgun blast to his shoulder. While recovering, he contracted pneumonia and died at home in Kentucky at the age of 49. While he left his family with a comfortable inheritance, it's been said that a big portion of his take from the hoax has never been accounted for. Two days after his death, his funeral was said to be the largest ever held in Elizabethtown. Businesses closed so their employees could attend. Notorious is the word they seem to like to use to describe their most famous and colorful native son. He left town an apprentice hat maker and returned a millionaire. He pulled off one of the greatest hoaxes in American history and largely got away with it. I don't know about you, but for me, I can't help but smile that the greediest of the greedy, who wanted it all for themselves, got just a little taste of their own medicine.
It was a red and white Schwinn. For a 12-year-old kid, though, it was probably so much more than just a bike. It was his first taste of freedom as he wove through the streets of Louisville, the wind it created blowing on his face. When it got stolen, it probably felt like his whole world had collapsed. He was angry, and rightfully so. But in that moment, he couldn't possibly know what would come next. None of us ever do. Sometimes when bad things happen to us, they open doors we didn't even know were there. And so it was with young Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. and his red and white Schwinn. If that bike had never been stolen, he may very well have grown up to be a sign painter like his father, and the world may have lost out on one of the greatest athletes that ever lived. When his bike was stolen, young Cassius reported it to the first police officer he could find, an officer named Joe Martin. Cassius told Joe that if he found the person who stole his bike, he meant to whoop him good. Joe looked at the scrawny 90-pound kid and told him he better learn how first. In addition to being a police officer, Joe Martin was also a boxing coach. He convinced young Cassius to come by Columbia Gym and give it a go. Cassius Clay took to boxing like nothing he had known before. He won his first fight within a few weeks and would go on to win 100 of 105 fights over the next six years. He won six Kentucky Golden Gloves Awards and two National Golden Gloves Awards and the Amateur Athletic Union's national title. He was chosen for the U.S. Olympic team and won the gold medal in the light heavyweight division for Team USA at the 1960 Olympics in Rome. He was just 18. Cassius Clay returned to Louisville a champion, but it was 1960 and he was still black. According to his book, he was refused service at a whites-only restaurant downtown, and he was so upset that he walked to the 2nd Street Bridge and threw his gold medal into the Ohio River. Clay made his debut as a professional boxer on October 29, 1960. He won that fight in six rounds and would win his next 18 fights as well, 15 of them by knockout. In 1961, he attended his first meeting of the Nation of Islam. He liked what he heard there. The following year, he met Malcolm X, who would become his early mentor in the religion and his friend. Malcolm X had a profound impact on the man Cassius Clay would become. On February 25, 1964, Clay was scheduled to challenge for the World Heavyweight Championship against Sonny Liston in Miami. Before the fight, he called Liston a big ugly bear and told the press he would float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Despite these shows of confidence, he was a 7-1 underdog, and privately, people wondered if he would even show up for the fight at all. He did show, and what a show it was. Clay's speed and strength were incredible, and Liston only made it through six rounds. When the bell rang starting the seventh round, Liston stayed in his corner. At just 22, Clay became the youngest boxer to ever win the heavyweight championship from a reigning champ. That record stood until 1986, when Mike Tyson won it at 20. Clay was ecstatic. He told the press they could eat their words. I'm the greatest, he said. I showed the world. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. Soon after winning the championship, Cassius Clay renounced what he called his slave name 
and became first Cassius X, and then the name we remember him by today, Muhammad Ali. The only thing about this change, which is a shame, is that his birth name was chosen by his grandfather to honor his political hero, Cassius Marcellus Clay, who was a great Kentucky politician and a noted abolitionist. Of his name change, Ali stated, quote, I am America. I am the part you won't recognize, but get used to me. Black, confident, cocky. My name, not yours. My religion, not yours. My goals, my own. Get used to me, end quote. Ali defended his title against former heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson and was scheduled to fight WBA heavyweight champion Ernie Terrell in Chicago. In the interim, the Louisville Draft Board changed his draft classification to 1A. He had previously been classified low because of his dyslexia, but now he was deemed highly eligible. Ali told the press he would not serve if he was drafted. He stated, quote, I ain't got nothing against no Viet Cong. No Viet Cong never called me nigger. They asked me to put on a uniform, to go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam, while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights." End quote. After his comments, the Illinois Athletic Commission refused to sanction the fight. Ali fought instead in Canada and the UK, and finally returned to the U.S. to fight Cleveland Williams in Houston in front of a record-breaking crowd of over 35,000. Ali won in three rounds. On February 6, 1967, he got his shot at Terrell, this time also in Houston. In the lead-up to the fight, Terrell kept referring to him as Clay and refused to call him by his Muslim name. The first six rounds were close, but in the seventh, Ali landed some hard blows, and Terrell was shaken. As Ali began to punish Terrell, he kept shouting, What's my name, Uncle Tom? What's my name? The fight went the full 15 rounds, but Ali won easily in the decision. He defended his title one more time, and then he was drafted. On April 28, 1967, he attended his induction, but refused to step forward when his name was called. That day, his boxing license was revoked, and his title was stripped. Convicted of draft evasion, Ali was sentenced to five years in jail and fined $10,000. His passport was taken away as well. He paid his bond and appealed the case, but he would not fight from March of 1967 to October of 1970. During that time, he crossed the country, speaking at universities and rallies. He criticized the war and the draft and called for equality, justice, and black pride for his people. His case would go all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was eventually overturned on a technicality. While this process was playing out, the city of Atlanta granted him a license to fight, and in October of 1970, after over three years out of the ring, he defeated Jerry Quarry in just three rounds. Five months later, Muhammad Ali was ready to challenge for the championship. His opponent was Joe Frazier. Both men were undefeated in their professional careers. Build the fight of the century. It was broadcast in 35 countries around the globe. The fight was a brutal one, and it went the distance. But by unanimous decision, Joe Frazier came out on top. In 11 years as a pro, 
it was Ali's first defeat. Ali won his next six fights and then lost in 1973 when Ken Norton broke his jaw. The following year, Ali won a rematch over Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden, but Frazier had lost the title to a mean young fighter named George Foreman. Long before he started selling excellent grills, Foreman was a hard-hitting boxer. He had beaten Frazier and Ken Norton, both with second-round knockouts. The fight would take place in Zaire and would forever be known as the Rumble in the Jungle. You may remember from Episode 7 of this podcast that James Brown performed there before the match, as did B.B. King. Rolling Stone sent Ali's fellow Louisville native Hunter S. Thompson to cover the fight, but he ended up getting drunk and missed the whole thing. From the opening bell, Foreman came out swinging. Ali went quickly on the defensive, where he stayed for the first seven rounds. As Foreman began to tire, Ali started swinging, and in the eighth round, Foreman went down. For the second time, Muhammad Ali was the heavyweight champion of the world. The rumble in the jungle had been watched by a billion people. In 1975, Ali agreed to a third fight with Joe Frazier to be held in the Philippines. The thriller in Manila had Ali on the defensive through 12 rounds, and then he attacked Frazier. Ali dominated the 13th and 14th rounds, and Frazier's trainer threw in the towel before the 15th. Both of Frazier's eyes were swollen shut. Ali defended his title several more times, and then, in February 1978, was scheduled to fight a young, fairly unproven boxer named Leon Spinks. Ali clearly didn't train very hard for this fight, and ended up losing the fight and his title to Spinks in a split decision. Ali won the rematch, though, later that year in front of 70,000 fans at the Superdome in New Orleans, becoming the only boxer to win the championship belt three times. Muhammad Ali retired in 1977. He came out of retirement in 1980 to challenge Larry Holmes for the championship, but lost. He fought one more fight, another loss, in 1981 before retiring for good with a final record of 56-5. and five. After his retirement, Muhammad Ali was determined to spend the rest of his life preparing to meet God. He wanted to practice the Islamic duty of charity by helping people, uniting people, and helping to make peace. He made many trips to Africa and the Middle East and participated in the longest walk here at home, a protest march for Native American rights. In 1980, Jimmy Carter asked Ali to go to Africa and try and convince African nations to join our boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. In 1985, he visited Israel to ask for the release of Muslim prisoners there, and in 1988, he went to Sudan to call attention to famine victims. In 1990, he successfully negotiated the release of hostages held by Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and in 1994, he campaigned on behalf of the refugees of the genocide in Rwanda. He used his worldwide fame and recognition to do as much good as he could. In 1996, Muhammad Ali was chosen to be the final torchbearer who would light the cauldron to begin the Olympic Games in Atlanta. Three and a half billion people watched from around the world. It was also during these games that Ali was given a replacement medal for the one he had lost long ago. 
In 2002, Muhammad Ali went to Afghanistan as the United Nations Messenger of Peace. Muhammad Ali died June 2, 2016, at the age of 74. He is considered one of the greatest boxers of all time and was named Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Century. He was on the cover of their magazine 36 times, second only to Michael Jordan. But he was also on the cover of Time magazine five times, more than any other athlete. In his life, he was awarded the Philadelphia Liberty Medal for his humanitarian efforts and the Presidential Citizens Medal in 2001. In 2005, George W. Bush presented him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Muhammad Ali was a tremendously gifted athlete, but it is his actions outside of the ring which he should be remembered for. He stood up for what he believed in, even though he knew it might cost him everything. He saw firsthand that black Americans were still facing real challenges, and he used his fame to call attention to their plight. He was ridiculed for taking a stand and called un-American by many. But if it could ever be said of anyone, Muhammad Ali was a fighter. For an athlete to use his fame to call attention to a wrongdoing is something which should be admired, not vilified. After the rumble in the jungle, Ali and George Foreman became friends. Foreman once said of his friend Muhammad Ali that he was, quote, the greatest man I've ever known. Not the greatest boxer. That's too small for him. He had a gift. Everything America should be, Muhammad Ali is. That's it for the show this week. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, please take a minute to rate and review it. And please tell your friends to tune in as well. To find out more about me, my slow state-by-state -state journey around the country, or just to get in touch, check out my website, www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Many thanks to our musical guests this week, Floyd Stewart, Bill Cooper and Pure Country, and nine and 12-year-old pickers Classy and Grassy. I recorded them live at the weekly Rosine Barn Jamboree in Rosine, Kentucky. To find out more about upcoming shows, search Rosine Barn Jamboree on Facebook or follow the link from my blog. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTechMusic.com for music and sound effects, and also to the wonderful people at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. I've made my turn, and I'm headed back east across the south of Kentucky. I've got some beautiful nature to check out this week as fall foliage peaks here in Kentucky. Then I'm headed deep into Appalachia, in the far southeast of the state. Always a fascinating part of America. Get out and vote this week, people, and be kind to each other out there. Once again, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, 
your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every. 